If you'll please remain standing as you are able um, in respect of God's Word as we read the Holy Scriptures this morning. The first will be on your screen. It's also found on page 46. If you happen to be like me, a little old-fashioned, 46 on your pew Bible, I will be reading from the New Revised Standard Version, which is the version that is in your pew. As he was sitting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said, You lack one thing. Go sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals it is impossible, but not for God. For God all things are possible. Peter began to say to him, Look, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, for my sake and for the sake of the good news, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers and sisters, mothers and children, and fields with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. For many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And then... On page 152, I'm going to get in the center yet. 152 in your pew Bible from Romans chapter 1, one of John Wesley's favorite passages. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed through faith for faith, as it is written, the one who is righteous will live by faith. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Very grateful for the opportunity to be here in this congregation. As many of you may remember, I was the pastor at Kingswood here in town for uh, seven years. Uh, some of my best years. Sherry and I really loved our time in Clovis. What now? 
Now, aren't you glad that my wife stopped me? We would have missed that, and it would have been a shame. Thank you, Farrell and Annabelle. We appreciate that wonderful piece of music. And, and the way you entwirled Dvorak in America the Beautiful, Farrell, that, that, that was really good. So, I'm going to quit introducing myself and just start preaching. That's what I do best. You may decide otherwise here in a moment, but here we go. In the fall of 1976, Jesse Reyes left his father's farm, cotton farm, outside of Rawls, Texas, and entered into Texas Tech University as an agricultural economics major. He had the one and only full academic ride into the College of Ag that year at Texas Tech. He earned it. It was not affirmative action, I assure you. I know who the second place person was, and it was a distant second. I too entered into Texas Tech University that fall, and Jesse and I met one another and became friends both in the dorm, as we both lived in Gordon Hall, and in Farmhouse Fraternity, which was just starting on the Texas Tech campus. And so we ran around together with dorm friends and with fraternity friends. And one day we were alone, and Jesse asked me a very pointed question. Brad, he said, why are you not prejudiced against Mexicans? I was kind of taken aback. I knew my heart. Further, I was raised in Tulia, Texas, saying culture is walls for all practical purposes. I knew that every person raised in that culture was prejudiced. White, brown, black, polka dotted. It didn't matter. We were all prejudiced. That's the way we were raised. And I told him so. I said, Jesse, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I appreciate the compliment. I, I know what you're trying to say. I get it. And you're my friend. But I know that I'm prejudiced against Mexicans. No, Brad, you're not. Jesse, did you hear me? I did hear you. You don't know your own heart. You're not. All right, Jesse, I'll bite. Why am I not? You don't tell Mexican jokes and you don't laugh at Mexican jokes and you're the only one of our friends that does. And yes, I, or does not, excuse me. And yes, I know the culture in which we were raised and I get it, you're right. Brown, black, white, doesn't matter. We're all prejudiced, but you're not, and I want to know why not. That's a pretty pointed question. It kind of took me aback. But I looked at him and I said, Jesse, if there's any good in me, it's because of Jesus. If there's anything different about me, it's because of the cross of Jesus Christ. If there's anything that is unique, 
It's because he put it in me. And so we talked about Jesus Christ. About the day I gave my, my life to him when we hitched our wagons together <coughs> about how I knew that though I was going to hell, now my destination was heaven and how I was trying to serve him and that I did not know that I wasn't laughing at Mexican jokes and I wasn't telling Mexican jokes and that maybe the Holy Spirit was tugging on his heart with God's prevenient grace by keeping me from laughing or telling jokes against his race. Jesse struggled with that for a little bit. As most people are in this part of the world, at least then, he was raised in church and he had seen a lot of hypocrisy. He had seen a lot of things that he did not agree with and he could not bring himself, as he told me, to ask Jesus into his life. Just couldn't do it. You see, he looked like the rich young ruler that we read about just a few moments ago. God's grace had touched him. He got it. He realized it was God. He knew it was God. It wasn't any question about it. But the rich young ruler couldn't give up his possessions. And Jesse couldn't give up his hurt. And so he got stuck in God's grace. And that's really the point of this sermon. Are you stuck in God's grace? He was stuck there. John Wesley, in the passage that we did, dealt, read from the book of Romans, talked about from faith to faith. In other translations, it says grace to grace. Now, grace is always grace. doesn't matter when it comes to us. But God's grace, how we receive it, is different at times. When you and I are pre-Christian, God woos us, calls us, invites us to be his own, and that's prevenient grace, the grace that comes to us before we accept God's gift of salvation. And Jesse and the rich young ruler were stuck there. They had felt God's tug. They knew God was real. They understood that God wanted their heart. And they said no. Now we don't know what happened to the rich young ruler. The Bible doesn't tell us, I hope to meet him in heaven. I hope that you hope that we meet him in heaven. But we don't know. The scripture is silent on that subject. But God wasn't done with Jesse, and I suspect God wasn't done with the rich young ruler either. As I told you, Jesse was brilliant. On his ACT score... Some of you teachers will take note of this. 
he made 36 in all four categories. That's 100 in all four categories in a college entrance exam. I know people who made 27 in their ACT score and raised the average of the graduating class that year. Jesse was nine points above that. My goodness. As an agricultural economics major, he did very well in school. I don't know his GPA. He's never told me, but I can assure you it was, it was up there. He went on and got a master's in agricultural economics. And then are you ready for this? He got a doctor, applied, excuse me, to be in the economic program for a PhD at Harvard University and got in. Little bitty old Rawls, Texas. Here comes Jesse Reyes. Jesse got involved while he was working on his PhD. He got involved in venture capitalism. Now, venture capitalism is where um, he would line up people who had more money than sense. You may know some people like that with folks who had enough sense to need money, meaning they had an invention that needed capital. And he would unite the two together. Didn't matter what it was. One of the things I've known in my lifetime was a little organization called Mine and Me Cookies out of Merkle, Texas. I think it's now no longer there, but but nevertheless, it was mine and me cookies in the Abilene area. That was the thing for a while. We happen to know, Sherry and I did, the uh, maker of mine and me cookies. That's what Jesse did on the side. When he was in class, he got a little frustrated. Now, this is pre-2008, okay? And he would look at his professors occasionally and he'd say, you know... Jesse was also known for being a loudmouth. I learned more about economics on the cotton farm in Rawls, Texas, than you guys will ever know. And after the banking crisis of 2008, he called them and told them, I told you so. <laughs> and out of frustration and out of making more money doing venture capitalism than he could possibly make any other way, Jesse withdrew from the Ph.D. program. As Jesse continued in his job, he began to be known as being really good at it. You remember me telling you he was brilliant. He was really good at getting money and ideas together. And being good at it, eventually somebody would ask him to speak on the subject. And it would be a small gathering and he would share some of his thoughts and that sort of thing. Then, they would ask him to a little bigger gathering. And a little bigger gathering, a little further away. And then it began to be on TV occasionally. Not very, as he would tell me, not very often, Brad. 
but on occasion it'd be on MSNBC, some of those type of television networks. And then he started to, to speak on venture capitalism internationally. One day the French called, said, Jesse, we would love for you to talk about venture capitalism here, here in Paris, and this is the date. He looked on his calendar, it, date worked fine, that was great. They'd call him back and a little bit of a while later and said, Jesse, we've had to change the date. This is the date now. Well, I can't come then because I've got a, a previous engagement in New York City. Jesse, you have to come. Why do I have to come? You're the only guy that we've got speaking, only person. We know the event in New York City. They've got several people. They can live without you. You've got to come to Paris. Finally, after a little bit, Jesse said, well, they're not going to leave me alone, so I'm going to go to Paris. And he went to Paris. Spoke there. The day he was supposed to be in New York City was 9-11. You know the year. The place he was supposed to be was a few floors from the top in the restaurant on the North Tower. Jesse realizes that God has saved him via the French. He'd be dead. He'd be gone. And Jesse begins to do two and two together and goes, God has gone out of his way two times now to make certain that I have, or he has, my attention. Because I'm not going to make God do it a third time. So he asks God into his life. He comes back to his home in Summit, New Jersey, and he realizes, I've got to go to church. If Jesus is going to be important, I've got to be in church. He can't go to the denomination he grew up in in Rawls. And so he decides to go to a Methodist church. Because when he was in college, he knew a man. And you can fill in the rest. Jesse went from prevenient grace to justifying grace and made that leap. Not a change in, from God's end, but a change in our response to God. He was no longer stuck in prevenient grace. He no longer just knew that God existed. He wanted him and God to tie their wagons together and to go. Later, 2005, Jesse looked me up and told me the story. And so I can share it with you. And another time, I was approached by a couple of men in my church as we shared, I 
retired Methodist pastor, United Methodist pastor, retired January 1st. Did it 38 and a half years. During one of those years, a couple of men came to me in my church and said, Brad, you preachers have been telling us for years that if we would pray and read our Bibles every morning, our lives would be better. I said, yes, that's true. We can't get it done. The only way we're going to get it done is to have some accountability in our lives. And so this is what we want you to do for us. We want you to meet us at the church at 0500. You know why they call it O? Because, oh my God, it's early. 0500, and we're going to read our Bibles together and pray, pray, going to be separately, different parts of the sanctuary, and then we would come together a little bit before 6 o'clock and we would pray ourselves out. One of them had to go to be at work at 6.15, 6.20, something like that. And so that's what we did. Five days a week. I noticed a change in them. One of the days, one of their bosses came to, came to me and said, um, I don't remember what he was after, told me who he worked with and what he was the manager of. I said, then you know, da-da-da-da. Yeah. I said, have you noticed a change in that person? I have. He's calmer, quieter, more loving, less... When did you notice that change starting? Those dates corresponded. He said, well, you preachers have been telling us for years that this thing would make a difference in our lives, and I never believed you. I'm sitting there going, in my mind now, y'all ordain us, send us to school, and then you won't pay attention to us? But that's God's sanctifying grace, how he woos us and courts us to be closer to him, not just to be saved, but to walk hand in hand with him. Not perfectly, not in the sense you and I mean perfect. John Wesley had another definition for perfect, but that's another sermon for another time, and we'll let Jeb preach it. But there is that call to walk with God. You see, some people get stuck in justifying grace, just as they get stuck in prevenient grace. We're to move on to perfection, as John Wesley said. We're not just supposed to stay like the rich young ruler. We're not supposed to just stay saved. We're supposed to go on and be closer to God. Now, there's lots of ways to be closer to God. You don't have to get up five in the morning. But you need to do something consistently. It doesn't have to be an hour. In fact, I've found it to change people's lives with five minutes. Say, Lord, that's all I've got is five minutes. Believe me, mothers, I don't know where mothers come up with five minutes. But five minutes sometimes is all you can do. Sometimes you listen to the Bible while you're changing a diaper or while you're riding a tractor during harvest season or whatever. Now, 
God's provenient grace, justifying grace, sanctifying grace, is propelled by the greatness and the goodness of God. That's why it's grace. I know that's not rocket science. I get it. But that's why it is. We celebrate God's grace. Indeed, we as Wesleyans, as Methodists, participate in the grace of God. Not in some magical way, but in a very real spiritual sense as we take Holy Communion. 